Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Welcome to Headline Buster, brought to you by The Point. I'm Li Xin. In this series, I dissect stories that are making headlines around the world and talk to my guests to make up for the missing and some deliberately pieces of the puzzles. Our topic today, Shizang, which is better known abroad as Tibet. Shizang is the pronunciation of the Chinese name of the region. Almost exactly 72 years ago, on May the 23rd, 1951, the Central People's Government of China and the regional authorities of Shizang signed an official agreement on the peaceful liberation of the region. Now, the deal, better known as the 17-article agreement, would pave the way for democratic reforms to be introduced in 19. The reforms has abolished Shizang's feudal theocratic serfdom and set free around one million slaves once and for all. Now, Old Shizang was a dark place. British military journalist Edmund Candler, who visited Lhasa in 1904, wrote in his book, The Unveiling of Lhasa, that the people are medieval not only in their system of government and their religion, their inquisition, their witchcraft, their incarnations, their ordeals by fire and boiling oil, but in every aspect of their daily life. According to legal codes used in Old Shizang, the value of life was measured according to a person's blood and position. The most high-ranking ones were worth their weight in gold, while the most unfortunate ones a straw rope. With the liberation of Shizang in 1951, that became history. Seven decades later, the lives of Tibetans have been completely transformed. Now, from 1951 to 2022, the GDP of Tibet skyrocketed from Remembi 130 million US dollars to 213 billion. I'm sorry, Remembi we're talking about. That's a jump of over 1,600 times. The average life expectancy more than doubled from 35.5 years to over 72 years. And the overall population rose from some 1 million to 3.6 million. Ethnic Tibetans account for over nearly 90% of the region's total. That is over 3 million. In Oshizang, there wasn't a single proper school. Illiteracy rate exceeded 95%. Now, Shizang offers for all 15 years of publicly funded education from kindergarten to senior high school. Where in the world do you have that? The completion rate for nine-year compulsory education has reached nearly 97%. And the list goes on. As a matter of fact, I just visited the region three weeks ago. Although it was only for a few days, I managed to dive deep under the surface. How do the locals live? Are they happy? Can they keep their fine traditions while modernizing? And the answer was clearly yes. In the capital Lhasa, I found a bustling city on way to modernity which embraces its heritages. Both in and around the iconic Patala Palace and Jokkan Temple, I saw troves of devoted worshippers performing religious rituals without fearing disturbance. Inside the premises, worshippers and monks rub shoulders with tourists from all over the country. In the park, 
I joined locals performing traditional circle or tap dances. I may have had difficulties keeping up with their steps, but I was swept away by their joyfulness. Now, I have shared with you hard facts and my personal feelings. However, they don't seem to matter when politics and ideology come into play. What I'm referring to is the latest annual so-called International Religious Freedom Report published by the U.S. State Department. The report, as it always does, claims that religious freedom in China is a particular concern. It was tweeted by U.S. Ambassador to China Nicholas Burns on May the 17th. But first of all, I'm curious, does this report include the United States? That's a rhetorical question. If not, does the U.S. not consider itself part of the international community? America claims to be a land of the free, but if it chooses not to believe in religion, especially Christianity, life may be not so kind. In Arkansas, for instance, the state constitution says no person who denies the being of a god shall hold any office in the civil departments of the state, nor be competent to testify as a witness in any court. Astonishing, right? Such articles would be in place. In fact, in 2023, as we speak, there are still a total of eight states in the United States which have similar clauses on the books. Is this religious freedom? Some people say, well, one of such books has been uh, ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. But mind you, being an atheist or communist in the United States is not an advantage, especially if you want to run for public service. And this is only one problem in feeding religious freedom in the United States. Discrimination against Muslims, politicization of religious beliefs, Christian nationalism, to name but a few. What has the U.S. government done about these? Any progress? Are they printing an annual report on religious freedom in the United States? Unless and when they do that, we can accept that they talk about the rest of the world. Not surprisingly, the U.S.'s scrutiny is focused on others, especially those considered different-minded. China gets the privilege every year. And this year, the Parang Shizang was 34 pages long, alleging that religious believers suffer from discrimination and even persecution. On May the 16th, Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Wang Wenbing didn't mince his words. We do not accept it and categorically reject it. We urge the U.S. to face up to and reflect on its own problems, respect the facts and truth, stop applying double standards, and stop using the so-called human rights, religious and ethnic issues to meddle in China's internal affairs. As I said earlier, I was there and I saw a peaceful Shizang. What I definitely didn't see was religious oppression. I wonder if the writers of the report ever been to Shizang at all. Otherwise, they would not come up with such nonsense. However, the media treated the State Department report unquestioningly and uh, just chewed and spit it out. This ABC News report says, although data is limited, the survey also noted that the Chinese Communist Party has significantly and broadly cracked down on religious freedom over the course of the year. Well, if data is limited, how can one conclude there is a significant and broad crackdown? The article doesn't specify the content of the data and where it comes from. Out of thin air? 
This article on RFA accuses the Communist Party of China of religious cynicization. It says Beijing is trying to cynicize all religious activities in line with Communist Party doctrine. Well, it makes that classic mistake, or rather plays the classic trick of snatching Chinese quotes out of contests and fit to fit preconceived conclusions. Here, the sample is Chinese leaders' vow to remain committed to the principle that religions in China must be Chinese in orientation and provide active guidance to religions so that they can adapt to socialist society. Immediately, the phrase Chinese orientation is given the straight jacket of cynicization, a derogatory term referring to assimilation in the culture of Han, the main ethnic group of China. Somehow, the term has been expanded to cover influence of the party. But what China is calling for by Chinese orientation is really that religions in China should help support unity and prosperity of the country, especially the main religions, Buddhism, Taoism, Christianity and Islam. In which country should religions not be expected to do so? And what's wrong with guiding religions to adapt to society? Isn't it the hallmark of a society respectful of all beliefs? Religion must find its place within the society, not the opposite. Now, I don't want to bore the bejesus out of you. I think I've made my point, but I'd like to draw your attention to an embarrassing turn of events which had been widely reported recently when the Dalai Lama asked if a young boy wanted to suck his tongue. Now, in a related article, the BBC somehow decides to challenge the slave history of Shizang, calling it a controversy. It says, historically, the Dalai Lama did not directly own serfs, as he was seen as the sovereign of Tibetan society. Everyone in Tibet was considered his subject, much like people in the UK are subjects to the king. The article cites a scholar, Ong Shizang. I nearly died laughing. When I read that, Tibetan slaves were mere subjects, much like in the UK or subjects to the king. That's rewriting history, if you ask me. When these subjects live in dirt poor state, pay exorbitant taxes, owe lifeline debts and are bound to the estate, they are usually called slaves. The article also says some have argued that Shizang was already on the path of reform and did not need China's intervention. It looks like the great improvement of the standard of living in Shizang is nothing but a side note. Easy to achieve, nothing to write home about. When the GDP grows by 1,600 times, that's just nothing. Well, I beg to differ on that part. China has invested huge resources, as we can tell, to develop the region, which used to be a battleground for geopolitical influence by great powers in East Asia. Is that just a sidekick, a side note? Sorry, <laughs> that's laughable. Even self-styled so-called impartial journalists cannot be immune from ignorance, let alone bad faith. I want to wrap up there, but actually, the list goes on. The kind of media articles I can, battle, I can uh, pick goes on. And, and which farce would be complete without for the media, for the Western media to challenge China's sovereignty over Xi Jinping? 
On May the 7th, the Financial Times published a letter saying that Tibet is right to challenge China's sovereignty claim. That it seems China draws its territory claim to Shizang purely from history. That's a bit rich. Purely from history? If history doesn't matter, what does? Plus, Shizang is not challenging China's sovereignty claim. Some people outside the region do, often because they have a horse in that race, if you take my meaning, and I'll talk about that with my guests. Finally, this uh, U.S. report on so-called international media freedom sums up a line in the first act of Macbeth with the three witches. Fair is foul and foul is fair, hover through the fog and fill the air. It sets the tone for the remainder of the play by establishing a sense of moral confusion. Evil is depicted as good, while good is rendered evil. Such confusion is at play in Tibet reporting. Based on hearsay and dubious research, the Shizang narrative in the West is willfully and unrepentantly deleting, omitting, and twisting facts. Having seen Shizang with my own eyes, I can only marvel at how masterful some have become at this game. I'm pleased to be joined online by Colin McCarrots, an Australian sinologist, joining us from Beijing. We're also pleased to have Ayana Tangan, who is senior fellow with Taiha Institute and Independent Think Tank, and Rafael Enrique Zabeto, a Brazilian Esperanto expert from the Asia Pacific Center of China International Communications Group. Gentlemen, welcome to Headline Buster. Let me go to Professor Macaras first. You have been to Tibet and you've written about the subject, but help us understand how did this whole saga concerning religious freedom or territorial claim of Tibet first started to surface? What was the historical context of this whole narrative in the West? I think um, after the 17-point agreement, which was mentioned already in 1951, um, the Americans tried during the 50s to stir up trouble um, in uh, Sichuan, the Sichuanese areas of, um, of um, the Tibetan areas, and also in Tibet itself. They made no secret of this fact, and, and they were even quite proud of it. In 1959, there was a, a big rebellion, and the Dalai Lama left Lhasa and fled to India, to Dharamsala, where he still lives. Um, I think that what this did was to politicise the whole thing and it made the Americans, um, you know, want to see it in a very bad light. Um, they ignored, as you rightly said before, they ignored the fact that um, serfdom had been, had been um, overcome and that the life of the uh, Tibetan people was already much better than it had been before. And um, they made, did, did every effort they could to make um, bad reports about what was happening in, uh, in, in Xinjiang. Now, in 1987 and 1989, there were more disturbances, um, which were definitely provoked by the Americans. I mean, there was no, there's no question about that. Um, in fact, in, um, in 1989, the, um, the Americans had um, got it uh, secured that the Dalai Lama was given the Nobel Peace Prize which, I mean, is absolutely ridiculous, if you ask me. Um, I mean, what is the, the circumstance? You ask me why it's like this. I think it's, a, it's become very politicised, 
And um, the Americans have an act to grind. The, I mean, the American government, I mean, there has an act to grind, to act to grind to, um, in making it look very bad, in look, making everything look bad as, as if um, the human rights are being, um, are being abused. And I may say also that the Dalai Lama became a kind of icon also, and um, he, his view was believed. Um, and he had also, he had an extra grant in, um, in making things look bad in Tibet itself so that he himself would look good. And I think um, he became, as I said, an icon. And a lot of people in the West thought, oh, he's a nice holy man. We believe him. We don't believe the propaganda from China. That's how I see it. Yeah. Professor Mukeris, if uh, I'm allowed to follow up a little bit, what is the United States game by politicizing the Tibet issue? What well, do I they try to yeah, achieve? I think a lot of people in the United States think that Tibet should be independent. And I think they want to tear China apart. They don't want a Chinese unity. Um, and, and I think they're, do, they're doing, a lot of people are doing everything they can to secure that in. And it's the same in Xinjiang too, by the way. They've been doing, um, they've been trying to stir up trouble. I don't, don't say everybody is like that, but I do say that there are a lot of them who are, who are doing that. And, um, and they, they have a political purpose in doing it. Aina, your comments on the same questions. I agree with Colin. I mean, but I, I think you're giving too much credence to this. Uh, the U.S., we have a standard tactic. We accuse others of the things that we have done or continue to do. Uh, and we, you know, use any wedge issue or potential wedge, wedge issue that we can either gin up or, um, you know, it doesn't matter about facts. The intelligence services of the U.S. are funded at $90 billion a year. $330 million of that goes to uh, the National Endowment for Democracy. Well, why is, what is this group? Well, they're funded by the U.S. government, and their job is regime change. They are there to make sure that every country uh, adheres to American values. And if there's a powers in being that don't adhere to America's values, uh, they are free to go in there and try to literally destabilize the regime and bring it down. They've been very active in Tibet and on the Tibetan issue. Um, and this is just America's way of trying to weaken China. Raphael, you just visited Xizang. Tell us about your experience. Was it uh, your first time in that region? What did you see? What did you not see? Yes, uh, I was there last week. I can say, first of all, it's a very beautiful place. Uh, uh, we all know that, many beautiful scenic spots. And uh, I also saw much development in the region. So uh, I'd like to focus on uh, two topics that are the uh, environmental protection. I could see the, the protection there is, is great. The environment is very well preserved. And uh, in the region of Lhasa, it's even being improved, the government uh, is adopting uh, uh, new uh, techniques to plant trees in the surroundings of the city to improve the environmental conditions for the local people. And uh, the other one that I would like to, to stress is the poverty alleviation work that has been done there in Shizang. So together with the poverty alleviation work, uh, the infrastructure was improved, uh, the tourism industry was very well developed, uh, there were created uh, job opportunities, also opportunities for local people to study, to um, have a better life. And I could see it really worked, it's really effective. And then uh, the people in Shizan could uh, be lifted up from poverty. 
this is uh, a very important uh, situation there because uh, you know poverty is the biggest problem that we have nowadays in the world in my opinion and uh, here in china we succeeded to do a very good uh, poverty alleviation work and all chinese citizens including those in Shitsan, were lifted up from poverty and of course i also noticed uh, that people in Shitsan they really have religious freedom uh, i even uh, visited some uh, holy places there for the buddhists and i could see people that around the believers in buddhism they were uh, practicing their religion without any restriction everything working fine uh, rafael how refreshing how enlightening was this experience to visit tibet because uh, before people go there is just uh, my experience before you actually see it and be on the ground yourself, it is uh, impossible to understand the degree to which the lies <laughs> have been, you know, blinding people's eyes uh, all over the world. So how did it feel for you before you went there? I'm sure you also read about Tibet on all kinds of media. How big was the gap for you? Well, uh, yes, it's a big gap because uh before coming to China, everything I knew about uh, Shizan was uh, the information provided by uh, Western media. And they say, for example, that uh, here in China, people cannot uh, speak about the Dalai Lama. They say it's forbidden. But uh, here, especially there in Shizan, when we visited the places, they mention it because it's part of the history of uh, Shizan. You cannot uh, neglect that the Dalai Lama existed and, well, that, that they had like a, a position of like, a political and religious leader of the region. So we can see that um, many information about uh, Shizan abroad is not uh, real. It, 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 when you go there, you can see the truth. Mm. And of course, people say about the uh, restriction to religious practices. And I also noticed that, the, that people can uh, practice their religion. Professor Mokeris, what is this whole accusation of China not respecting religious freedom of uh, followers of religion about? I mean, what are they trying to beat the drum for by this against uh, against uh, Muslims in Xinjiang and now against the Buddhist followers in Tibet. What do you think these people are trying to drill into the mind of the ordinary people in the West? Well, I think it's um, to say that China is bad, the People's Republic is bad, and that um, it should be brought down. And that's what they're trying to stop China's rise. And um, I think it's, um, it's a propaganda exercise. As I said before, and I mean, as for the uh, whole question of religious freedom, it, it seems to me that um, when the, the Chinese uh, government talks about normal religious activities, it, right. um, it means that it's not, it's not going to tolerate religious activities that are going to be used to try and overthrow the government. And there have been quite a few of these in Tibet and in Xinjiang. Um, and it seems to me that it's, uh, it's uh, as you said earlier, it's not unusual that people will want to try and protect the government and they, they're going to stop religious activities that are against the government. But I, I just think that um, everything I've seen, in, and I agree with what Raphael said, I mean, I've been around a lot of places um, in China with religion and what I see 
is that um, normal religious activities are respected and people could go, go about them um, very normally. Finally, Aina, you know the United States, you're an American. Tell us a bit about religious freedom in the United States. Is this something to be very proud and, uh, you know, uh, serving as an example for the rest of the world? Well, just let me add uh, something on to uh, my experiences here in China. First off, the government does not discourage any kinds of spirituality. I mean, I know people who are Confucius. Uh, they follow Taoism, uh, Buddhism. Uh, there are Catholics here and things like that. But you cannot have a church that's unregistered. Now, in the United States, we have the same thing. If you are a church and you want to have an exemption, you cannot get involved in politics. That's not saying that they're not getting involved. But there's supposed to be a separation between church and state. And there have been many, many uh, instances where, you know, this has been broken. I mean, in Waco, Texas, uh, you know, there was a big massacre there because these radicals uh, were, you know, in essence, preaching this idea that they were going to uh, <laughs> go against the United States government. They were involved in illegal activities. You had the same thing with the Bundys in Oregon. Um, you know, and you've had this whole long history. I mean, the pilgrims themselves, uh, most people would consider them a, a religious cult. Uh, they were literally drummed out of England and then um, Holland, and they went to America because no one else wanted them. Uh, there, they imposed their own very strict standards. They used to hang people who uh, were, as they said, free thinkers or non-believers. And that happened for quite a few years into the actual um, uh, birth of the new nation. So those laws were on the books. And then, you know, what happened to the American Indians? Uh, there was they were suppressed brutally, um, just as in South America. Uh, you know, the churches, um, Protestant and Catholic alike, said you either believe as we do or we will, you know, in essence, uh, kill you or let God sort you out, as they say. So, you know, there were all sorts of conflicts with the Mormons. Uh, they wanted to have more than one a wife. Uh, that was the religious belief. Uh, they were persecuted. Uh, they were forced to give up the more than one wife idea. It was a law. So in the United States, as I said, the things that we have done, uh, we accuse others of doing. Well, that's very rich. I hope we are not being forced to copy that kind of freedom anytime soon in our country's history. I have to leave it there. Many thanks to my guest Colin McCarris, an Australian sinologist joining us from Beijing, Ina Tangen, senior fellow with the Taiha Institute, and Rafael Enrique Zerbeto, Brazilian Esperanto expert of the Asia-Pacific Center of China International Communications Group. With that, we come to the end of this edition of the Headline Buster, brought to you by The Point with me, Li Xin. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Li Xin in Beijing. You've got The Point.